Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For this podcast, I had the absolute good fortune to sit down with the marvellous Marino O'Dwyer and talk about all the roads that have led her to Inish, all the risks and leaps and instincts involved in the magnificent obsession that is the art of acting, all the knots and crosses, beats and rhythms played out in perfect time and the eternal ambition of breaking even on and off the stage. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and the ease of Marion's company made me forget the tape was running. We cover the work, the pure magic and little bit of heaven when it goes right on the night, parts played, parts sought, and then we go beyond the work, to the world we all live in, and the nightmare that it is to be without your health, without your home, in the year 2019. Enjoy this podcast. Marion O'Dwyer, you are currently treading the boards of the Abbey stage for Lennox Robinson's drama at Inish as Constance Constantia. <laughs> Constantia, that's my catchphrase, pronouncing my name correctly. Some days I dry on it myself. From the moment she sets foot on stage, she is a joy to watch. Can I ask you about assembling a character? Is there an approach you, you take to get into the shoes of the characters you play? Um, I I try to be instinctive about it and be led by whoever's directing me, you know. And in this case, I mean, Cal just I was I was laughing with him at the on the opening night. I said, uh, Cal McChrystal, our director, he he literally had a tray in his arm and just kept giving me little nuggets of gorgeousness from the very first moment I stepped onto the rehearsal room floor. And the first was actually correcting the pronunciation of the name. So that was a sort of delicious note to start off on. And it sort of gave me so much. It's funny, it's just a small little um, detail, but uh, it told you so much about the character. And it came from an actress he knew in real life, constantly corrected the pronunciation of their name. So (laughs) I think as an actor, you know, I drew on lots of actresses that I've admired over the years, but particularly from that older era, you know, and I'm thinking of people like Joyce Grenfell and... uh, um, Margaret Rutherford, people like that in those lovely black and white films, you know, and there's something about them that just that they kind of informed a lot of my choices. I kept thinking of them, you know, I was very lucky when I was training. I worked with Christopher Casson, God rest him. Um, and he was I mean, his mother was Dame Sybil Thorndike. And, you know, he had such a history behind him of all the classical actors. So he would have known the kind of actors that we're trying to portray in the show, which is that sort of, you know, forgotten era almost now, you know, of the fit-ups and people like Anya McMaster and, and his company. So um, I remember training with Christopher Casson. He used to do classes in the Gate Theatre and when I was in school, I was there in my school uniform and he you know, all these sort of classical ways of sitting on a chair and doing a bow or a curtsy, all those sort of things were things that he taught us, you know. So I feel lucky I had that sort of um, training a long time ago that sort of informs some of the things I'm still doing today in this show, you know. The Delamares, um, they're such an earnest and very endearing couple uh, and they have their own play within a play in it. That sense of timing and pacing between yourself and Nick Dunning is something to behold that 
and that comes with experience and trusting your playing partner? Yes, well I have to say Nick Dunning is a joy to work with. He's just amazing as as you know. I mean we've seen him in many, many roles being fantastic in, in serious drama but he's sort of delicious in comedy as well and I just love playing opposite him because it's live and it's in the moment and there's a little sort of giggle behind things and I mean one of the parting shots that Cal McChrystal gave us was to make mischief so we take that very seriously. <laughs> You're no stranger to Inish having visited there back in 2005 for yeah. a previous production as Annie Tuhig, the role that Helen Norton is now playing. Yes. When you revisit a show from a different angle, is there a residual memory of that show? Well, there was that one time? day in rehearsals when I said her lines by mistake. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. And I didn't even know I'd done it and everybody was laughing. I don't know why. But uh, yeah, because I'd said Helen's line. But um, I mean, this production is a very different production to the one I was in 2005. Um, Jim Nolan directed us in, a, I thought it was a lovely classical uh, production. Um, and we were set in the 30s in that production, whereas now were set in the 60s which gives it a sort of vibrancy visually I think you know the costumes particularly and some of the the added uh, you know attitudes that you get Um, but uh, yeah I mean Annie was um, I mean I I often said to Helen in rehearsals I'm so envious because I can see you doing things so much better than I did and you kind of you know you're kind of hitting yourself why didn't you do it that way when you had the chance to do it and different things you know different ideas she had that she brought to the the part you know Um, because Helen's just wonderful again another brilliant person to play opposite and and have fun with on stage you know she's great There are dark themes within this play. The temperament of the country towards mental health back in 2005 was less acknowledged and discussed as it is now. Was there um, a consciousness about the themes back then, do you recall? Um, I don't recall, actually, to be honest. You know, certainly in this rehearsal period, we did discuss it. I mean, you know, the serious side of uh, some of the mental health issues in this play, you know, they're very prevalent and it's a worry uh, and you don't want to add to people's problems. You want to alleviate them. I mean, this is essentially a humorous entertainment and we just want to make fun and have people laugh and have a good time. So we don't want to be insensitive to the seriousness of some of the issues that are skirted over, you know, but... um, Talking to Cal, he was very sensitive about it and yet he knew he had a job to do to try and mine the the comedy out of it. I found it extraordinary that it was written back in 1933 that this was the the themes that Lennox Robinson was was dealing with. Well, he was kind of, I think, way ahead of his time in many respects and, you know, like, there's there's a great love for each character in the play and, um, you know... I have nothing but admiration for Lennox Robinson and the kind of uh, writing he has done in this play because of that. Um, You know, and in a way, laughter is a great way for people to cop themselves on too. You know, we can all wallow in in what we see as our own misery or or whatever is wrong in our lives. I hope it makes people escape from their problems coming to see drama Inish and having a laugh, you know. There, there is a sensitivity in it. There's a very apparent uh, relationship between the two eggs and their son yes. and the aunt as well. I think there's very tender very moments sweet. there, which is yeah. very sweet and, yes. and acknowledged. I, I did get the impression from talking with everyone that working with Cal, that the rehearsal room was a very happy and industrious one. Yes. I, I suppose, what kind of di- director do you enjoy working with and, and, and well, brings out the best? certainly Cal McChrystal, that's for sure. I mean, I was, I was marvelling at his um, ability to his time management skills are extraordinary because um, we had a very gentle time of it and very relaxed and happy rehearsal room 
and it you know felt like we were laughing from morning till noon and night but we were getting the work done and I remember at the end of the second week we'd gone through the play on the floor we'd blocked it and we'd done a little discussion about it and we'd blocked it um, and we'd been through it twice on the floor after two weeks which is kind of unheard of. And I was kind of, how did he do that? I was sort of trying to puzzle it in my mind's eye. And one of the things he did was um, he would spend coffee breaks and lunch breaks with us. And that's when he got to know us as people and chat to us just about everyday life and stuff like that. And because he was anxious to mine the comedy from our own selves as well. Um, but, you know, once we were on the floor, we were just doing the play. There was no like anecdotes or, or gone off on tangents. We stuck to the play. And that's one of the things I think that meant from 10 to 6 we got so much work done, you know, in such an enjoyable way. When you're directed by a less experienced director, I mean, you've got a wealth of experience under your belt. How, how do you broker that negotiation between your experience and, and them trying to guide you to a certain way that might be against your instincts with a, with another director say Sometimes when it's a younger director and they're not sure it depends you know I, I've worked with some really fantastic young directors um, Jedda Debris comes to mind she's a very talented young director and I really enjoyed working with her but she has a maturity beyond her years where and beyond her experience where I mean she has a lot of experience but you know, she she um, she's willing to say, I don't know. And then we can find it together. I think it's only when people kind of put up a front of pretending they know what they're doing when they don't, <laughs> that you run into problems and you run into ego and, and stuff like that. You know, um, for the most part, I think um, it's, it's about, you know, I mean, if you're going to work with somebody you haven't worked with before, you need to chat to them and see, well, can we work together? Because it is a very particular kind of relationship because you're handing them a lot of trust because your director is your outside eye. And if that outside eye isn't going to be a good one, you, you might run into trouble, you know. And oftentimes if I was going into you know an unknown quantity, um, I might, well, who else is in the cast? And I, can they be my outside eye if I run into trouble? Um, you know, you'd, you'd often approach it that way, you know, because you do need to have that negotiation of, of trust and, and and ability, really, you know. And you're taking risks um, within that rehearsal room, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. Well, I've often said one of the things you need to be able to do in a rehearsal room is be wrong. You know, you need to be able to make lots of mistakes because you need to be free. You know, sometimes an actor comes into a rehearsal room, they're just trying to perfect it the whole time and trying to deliver their final performance on, you know, day three of rehearsals. And that way you don't really make good progress, I think, and you you lose touch with your instincts. Whereas if you're free and you just make a fool of yourself and it doesn't matter how stupid you are, um, then you you know some nuggets of gold come out of that and, and it's you know it's fun doing that as well I mean you can have a laugh doing that and like even in Dramas Inish there's a line I have in the play which came out of a mistake I made you know when I said something back to front and Cal said oh leave that in you know so things like that but I think it's very important to be able to make mistakes that's you know this thing of trying to be perfect in rehearsals is a waste of time yeah, you have to try it and then rule it out and then, yeah. or, you know, explore exactly. every possibility. You have to explore it. And, and yeah, and sometimes by doing it wrong, you get to know what is the right way to do it, you know, because <laughs> it feels so bad when you do it wrong. So you go, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do it that way. You and know. then getting laughs in the rehearsal room, I'm always interested in, I suppose, sustaining that laughter. The same people are, he- are hearing it and just maintaining 
that humour. It's interesting you should mention that because I remember um, there was a couple of laughs that I had in the rehearsal room that I knew I wouldn't get in performance because they're what my late father used to call the when the orchestra laughs. Um, in other words, it's kind of an in joke. And um, there was a few of them. And I was thinking, I've got to get used to the will be silence on that. I won't be getting a laugh, you know, um, because it was just like the other actress just found it funny because it was me. I don't know what it was. But, you know, likewise, in rehearsals, you might get a laugh the first time you do something or you mightn't even get a laugh. But, you know, the audience will laugh. I mean, Cal constantly said when he was rehearsing, he had the audience on his shoulder. And he just knew exactly where the laughs were going to come. So he knew the rhythm of it. So he knew how to plot the rhythm of it. It was was extraordinary working with him. I've never, I mean, I've worked with some fantastic directors in my time. I've been very lucky and, um, you know, people who are terrific on comedy. I'm thinking of like Ben Barnes working with Byrne Farrell plays and Joe Dowling, of course, is supreme at comedy and stuff like that. But, you know, Cal was so creative um, for comedy and some of it was very technical and some of it was very instinctive. He had a blend of, of all the different aspects of comedy, which was fantastic to work with. Do you think you learned a lot on this one? Absolutely learned a huge amount, huge amount about comedy. Yeah. I mean, I think you never stop learning about comedy because it's it's such a weird little mathematical thing. You know, you I always say it's like an equation and you, once you get the equation correctly, then it's about repeating that equation, you know, and the audience, of course, is part of it. So um, sometimes they will give you more and, and you just surf the waves of it and it's fantastic and it's great fun. And other times you're thinking, come on, lads, you know, play your part, you know, but um, it's fascinating. It always will be fascinating to me that, you know, you can say a line. 10 seconds earlier, it won't get a laugh. 10 seconds later, it won't get a laugh. But on the money, you'll get the laugh. It's weird. You just really have weird. To, you have to listen to those beats. It's like a music and it's a rhythm. Comedy is very much a rhythm. You know, people talk about timing, but a lot of it is the rhythm of it, you know. You recently mentioned you marked 30 years since your debut on the Abbey stage. Yes. It's <laughs> incredible. Ancient times. <laughs> Was it of significance to you marking that debut like so when you first came to the Abbey did you realise was it of significance to you? Well it meant so much to me to come to the Abbey I mean I can remember I, there's one particular night I came to the Abbey I don't even remember what play it was and I was with my mother and my aunt and I got really cranky because at that time I couldn't even get an audition in the Abbey and you know it took me a while to get started in my career you know and um I just found it really frustrating to be sitting watching a play and not be in it, you know. <laughs> and um, so I, I still remember that when I'm nervous waiting to go on and kind of maybe not feeling like going on. think, well, now there's a time you couldn't, you know, get in the door. So when I finally got a, a job here, it was actually it was Joe Dowling. Um, he directed me in a play called You Can't Take It With You. And which was, a, again, a 1930s comedy, actually, uh, Catherine and Hart. And... Um, it, it it was it was a funny one because um, what happened was there was an actors club at the time and Fiek McAneel, I just knew him to say hello to. And he was working with uh, Noel Pearson, I think, who was the artistic director at the time. And he said, oh, they were talking about you today. Can you dance? And I, I would have said I could have done trapeze at that stage if it meant getting in the door. And, and I said, yes, yes. And he said, now ballet. And I, I said, well, I've done a class or two. I literally had done two classes. Um, and he said, because the character has to dance. So I went and got the script and um, she had to do 
ballet, but she had to be funny doing it. She didn't have to be a good ballet dancer. So I thought, I can do this, you know. But Joe Dowling was directing and he was very nervous about this dancing part of it. And he said, I don't want to be in the middle of rehearsal saying, sorry, you don't look like a dancer. It's not working, you know. So... So I, well, I don't know if I should tell you this, but anyway, I went to a hypnotist. <laughs> I did everything I could to try and get my twirls going. And I, my mother uh, got this woman who was, a fr- actually, she was the widow of my dad's best friend. And she came and taught me ballet in my kitchen. <laughs> so by the time I came to the day one of rehearsals, I was raring to go. And um, yeah, that was my first part in the, the Abbey. I was very grateful to get in the door. But 30 years ago, yeah, and it, it was just, I suddenly thought, I have a feeling it was around this time of year. And I just thought, I'd look it up. And I thought, oh my gosh, our first preview was the 21st um, of November. And the 21st of November was the opening night of You Can't Take It With You in 1989. So 30 years to the day. That's extraordinary. <laughs> well, take me back to the way back when your father was a Radio Aaron player before yeah. you were born. Can I take it then that it was a theatrical household? Not remotely theatrical. And um, I mean, mum and dad came to see me in plays, but that was they, they didn't really go to the theatre that much. I don't know if if at all when I was small. But um, dad, like it was funny, he, he never really did stage. I think he did two one off um, stage appearances, one in the Gaiety reading poetry with the orchestra and he played the Michal MacLeamore part in Where Stars Walk on a Sunday night in the Gate Theatre. And that was it. And um, I remember trying to persuade him into a play one time and I was doing a play in the Gate and they were looking for somebody, his age group, and uh, it was supposed to be a 13-week run. And uh, I was saying, would you be interested in that? And he said, oh, how long would it be on for? And um, I said, oh, six weeks, knowing he was 13. He went, oh, God, no, six weeks, no, no. So he wasn't really, you know, keen to, to do the theatre. But um, I still think he, he was a great loss to theatre. And people used to say that he was a loss to film as well. But, um, you know, he was, he had a family and he, he decided to do production. So he was a producer in radio by the time I was born. But mum used to say that <laughs> she she was a great loss to the stage herself because there was some audition herself and her friend for an amateur company that they were going to go to and then she chickened out at the last minute. And she used to often say, imagine what would have happened if I'd gone in. <laughs> but her father used to do amateur plays in Thurlis and Tipperary where they were from. So I suppose I had it on both sides a bit, you know. So do you think that's where the spark came from? Um. I don't really know. I mean, I did a radio play when I was about 11 and, you know, that was, you know, I enjoyed the excitement of all of that and meeting actors and the microphone and all, you know, it was all very exotic as a young child going in. And then, you know, I I wanted to do things like Maureen Potter's show and stuff like that. And um, mum and dad kept saying, they, they put me off saying, oh, you'd have to go to London to drama school and, and all of that. And then... I think what happened really was I was in danger of becoming mute. I was very quiet and I was about 14 and they saw an ad for acting classes in the Gate Theatre and that's where Christopher Casson was teaching. So I went along to those and it was out of that I got a walk on in a play and I remember I was doing my leaving cert at the time and um, I remember Dear Douglas Grania was on my, my uh, syllabus for Gaelga and in walked Michal MacLeamore to the green room and I was completely starstruck, you know, that he was there. But um, yeah, I, and that was like, 
I thought I was going to be a primary school teacher like most of my cousins. And then I remember another actress coming in saying, oh, they're casting for the next play. And I thought, oh, gosh, maybe I could do this. You know, that was kind of the moment I remember. So you were shy going into the classes and that brought you out of yourself. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, my dad used to say acting was the shy man's revenge, you know, and I think that might be true. And where did the belief come from? Because you, you're a shy child going into these classes and you, you blossom and bloom within there. And then someone walks in saying there's auditions. You had a, a firm belief that you could make this leap? Yeah, there was a real, I don't know, there was a real desire to do it. And I don't know really where that came from. It was just, I think I, think I discovered it as a self-expression or something. I, I started to feel like... It, it made me different or something. I don't know what it was that um, appealed to me. I didn't analyse it at the time, but I just wanted to do it. And um, yeah, it was a weird one. I didn't know why. And sometimes I wonder about reincarnation or something, you know, maybe there's some actor coming back. But yeah, I just had to do it. And it was like an addiction. It still is a bit. I mean, sometimes, you know, you're in a play and you're thinking, oh, I'm really tired and I'm exhausted and need a break. And then you hear some something's being cast and you're up like Flynn and you're dying to do it. And you kind of go, it is like an addiction. You know, what does it feel like out there when it's going well? It's like magic. There's no two ways about it. I mean, uh, you particularly get it in comedy. I mean, drama is one of those delicious things to play because there's such a contact with the audience and when they love it, it's heaven. It's heaven. Yeah. <laughs> if that doesn't sound too smug. No, it's, it just sounds about right. Can, can you set your nerves aside every night? Do you still have nerves? Um, now, we were talking about this, myself and Helen Norton in the dressing room last night. Um, I think Cal McChrystal had us so well rehearsed. We were very relaxed. We were more relaxed than I'm used to being, I would say. Um, I don't know why. I mean, he just... We, we were very together and um, I, I mean, I definitely do get nervous. It's not that I do, but I, do, I wouldn't get sick with the nerves like I, I used to when I was young. I get very wound up and, you know, the, doing big warm ups like crazy and all that sort of thing. I mean, I obviously warm up every night, but, you know, it's, it's a more <laughs> measured kind of a thing instead of frantic, you know, which I think is, is the way I was when I was younger, you know. And when did you feel like a legitimate actor? You know, you, you, you... I think you always think the acting police are going to come and get you. I really thought when I was cast in this part, I thought the acting police will definitely get me. No, I don't believe I, you. I swear, I honestly, I really thought, and I was saying to all my friends, will you pray for me? I don't know what way this is going to go. And then Cal, I mean, as I say, he just handed me all these little nuggets and I knew where I was then with it, you know, so... I mean, I think it's just because, like, um, my friend Kate O'Toole played it in the the production I was in in 2005. And it was a much more classical. I mean, she's beautiful and beautiful voice and looked like a proper actress. Do you know what I mean? And I was kind of thinking, how the hell am I supposed to do it? You know, so it was just it's a completely different approach to the part, you know. So um, but I did at the beginning. I was very wary of it. And in those first few years, you were saying that you were finding it hard to get work. 
How supportive were your parents? They sound as if they well, were, they were protective and cautious about it. Um, my parents were cautious. I mean, because I, I left school at 16 and I got did a very quick secretarial course and then I got a job in the bank. And um, when I was offered a job um, with the late Tom McGinty, you know, the dice man, he offered me a job as a clown for um, so I threw my typewriter in the air and went and became a clown and there were salt tears shed by my mother I remember particularly being so upset that I was giving up this pensionable job you know but um, they always supported me and I mean sometimes they had to support me financially you know and um, you know it's it's hard to make a living and it has got harder I think nowadays you know I don't know how young people are managing it but it seems to feel like people need a part time job much more than they used to when I started out. But even though I did have temp typing, I used to do that um, quite a lot at the beginning, you know, to kind of make ends meet. But um, yeah, no, they were very, they were wary, they were afraid. But I remember going on tour with Dancing at Lunasa um, to Australia and I was just about to leave and the bank were on strike. And I remember my mother saying, thank God you didn't listen to me. You'd be out in the rain with your umbrella <laughs> on strike, you know, so. And you're heading off on tour. You have to follow your heart, whatever the, whatever the outcome. And you mentioned working with the Dice Man. Um, yeah. I suppose because I'm thinking that he, as you mentioned, clowning, would that have been a big influence on you or, or did you learn much from him? Oh, I learned a huge amount from Tom. Yeah, I mean, God rest him, he was brilliant. Um we did the street theatre stuff and I think that was very, uh, I mean, that's an education of sorts that that uh, it changes you a lot, I think, when you've worked. My mother used to call it begging when we did our street theatre. But, you know, you did stillnesses and um, people, you know, react very differently to you and they can be very threatened just because you're standing there still, you know, in, in a clown's outfit with a white face. And... It was fascinating. The people watching you could do while you were doing your stillnesses, you know. It's interesting um, that you mentioned Cal McChrystal uh, saying he has the audience on his shoulder. It would make me think that um, that was the start of how you listened and reacted with an audience if it was street theatre. It pr- probably was. And we did uh, children's um, theatre as well. We, we played in primary schools. And I've always said at primary schools, I mean, well, children are like, the greatest audience you would get because they're completely honest. And so if you're boring them, you'll know. And if you're entertaining them, you'll know. So that was a fantastic upbringing, as it were. And when I was in the bank as well, I did pub theatre, which again, <laughs> um, adults with a few drinks on them, not unlike children, be pretty honest as well, you know. And I can remember like uh, doing this play on Thrill, um, and I was making this speech about... Uh, I was going to kill myself and my baby and um, I heard somebody going two pints of Guinness and a packet of crisps. And I thought, well, I haven't won the audience over. So, you know, I mean, it did educate. <laughs> you had to listen to see is anything working. <laughs> and now I'd say you're well equipped to, I mean, I don't know how well, you would you deal with that. Well, you have to try and be interesting enough that they're not going to be thinking <laughs> of their pints of Guinness and their packets of crisps. I wanted to ask you about being funny. Was that something you recognised in yourself very young. No, and here's the thing. I mean, I was not like, you know, the way some people are the class clown and things like that. Um, 
But <laughs> I remember I, I did more classes in the Oscar theatre, which is now defunct. But, you know, um, you had your audition pieces that you trotted out for every audition. You know, you'd always have a couple of speeches from Chekhov or whatever. I was very fond of um, <laughs> speech from the three sisters, which I used to, you know, moan my way through. And I wasn't getting hired, funnily enough. And I remember this girl who had been in my class going, why aren't you doing a comedy piece? Comedy's your forte. And that was the first I knew of it, that comedy was anything I should be focusing on, you know. And of course, then once I started a bit of comedy, things changed a bit, you know. So, I mean, part of, I think, when you're young is trying to figure out where, what's your unique selling point? What, where do you fit into the market? And, you know, you, you, I, you know, I quickly realised I wasn't going to be playing Juliet or, you know, those kind of parts. But do you know, it's 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 a funny one trying to figure out where you fit. And I remember um, a lovely actress, Liz Davis, again, somebody who's passed on. She gave me great encouragement. She said, I think you're going to do well because there's not many character actors your age group. So, you know, I, I did a lot of funny maids at the beginning, you know, so it's it's I was lucky too you know because of the way things were you know so it always depends on if there's a lot of people that are like you for for the roles you're up for you know or if there's only a few when when I look at uh, many of the characters that you played they do seem to have a streak of humor in them and I'm curious whether because sometimes they can be cruel but there's always an element of humor that and I'm trying to think is that something that you draw out of the characters, is that where you go to? Um, it, it, I'm even thinking of the bag of cats, the mother-in-law, quite a cruel character. Oh, yeah, and there was, but there was a side to her that you brought an element of humour because there was moments of tenderness as well. Do you, are you drawn to those, to those type of characters or do you draw the humour out of those type um, of characters? I don't really know what the answer to that is. I mean, uh, it's funny there's some parts you just go that's got I've got to play that or or that's the one I really want to get if if anybody's auditioning me for anything in that I hope it's that one or whatever you know um uh like it is fun playing somebody who's a bit cruel and not very nice because it's just more fun it's more interesting you know nicey nice isn't always so easy to play you know can, that can be dull you know I think it a lot of parts there's humour to be had you know and it's funny sometimes you know when you're working with an actor who's used to doing drama they don't often see it you know whereas I suppose it's my bread and butter I'm looking for it all the time When you talk of roles that you may not be cast in um, I've talked to like fantastic actors over the years who um, have such fantastic range and they have funny bones, but they're not considered for dramatic roles. Is there a role that you would love to do that may surprise people? Well, like, I mean, I have been lucky that I've played, like, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed playing Bessie Burgess, for instance, you know, and I would love, I would have loved to play Juno. I mean, I, I was asked by a company and I was already booked to do something else and I couldn't. And that was one of the ones I just couldn't believe I was having to say no to it, you know, because I would have loved to have played that part. And then I wasn't considered for more recent productions. So you kind of go, oh, it's a frustration. But, you know, I've often said it before, like, you know, you can get bogged down in wanting a certain part and that production might they might never produce that play in your lifetime, you know, when you're the right age for it. 
and you know that's that's kind of a road to hell like you know you just have to kind of deal with what comes up you know and and what rolls are around um but you know there are certain parts yeah you think oh that'd be great fun to play and you know, you know wouldn't mind having a crack at like you know we you just don't know but um i love o'casey so i just enjoy playing him you know there's so much uh, luck involved in what yeah. you do and timing, you Absolutely. know. Because, like, you know, there was a production recently of Juno that um, it was uh, brilliant people in it now. I'm not, not being sour grapes or anything. But, you know, I do know if it had been a different director, I might have had an audition for it, you know, but I wasn't. Because certain directors so just, see you they just in don't a certain... See you. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some people just can't take me seriously. So that's fair enough. I can understand that, you know. I, you know, I've worked hard at trying to be funny. So, you know, you can understand it. Like, But sometimes there's limited imaginations on, on those directors and, and, you know, casting directors' parts as well. You know, you just think, I, I find it incredible, you know, because I think doing comedy is is one of the hardest jobs, you know, and that just shows... Well, I, I've Such often skill. said that it's sometimes it's easier to make people cry than it is to make them laugh, you know, and um, I, people don't get that and, and people take drama more seriously. And yes, of course, you know, there are dark plays that, you know, they investigate very serious themes and, and, and rightly so they're taken seriously. But as in terms of the ability for acting, you know, you'd be surprised that, you know, some revered actors that aren't able to get a laugh on, on something that's really obvious to me anyway, you know, so you kind of go, we all have our skill sets and, you know, it's it's just you have to play to your strengths, but at the same time, it's good to get stretched in the other way and try and do something. Having said that, I can't imagine doing a part where I'd never get a laugh all night. I think I'd hate that. Really? <laughs> you, 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 need, you know, like if I was doing a dramatic role, I know I'd have to get a laugh somewhere. Uh, and playing nicey nicey isn't always interesting. Yeah. Maybe playing a baddie. Well, everybody loves playing a baddie. I mean, that's the best crack ever. I mean, Mrs. Kilbride and Bite Bug Cats was the best crack to play, you know. And it was very funny because I had this scene with that little girl. <laughs> and one of the little girls in rehearsals, you know, I, we, we were doing a run through. So obviously we were all giving it the full petrol, you know, and uh, so I was kind of letting her have it and I could see her looking at the stage director as much as to say, are you going to let her talk to me like this? And so at the end of the rehearsal, I went up to her and I said, you know, I was only acting. And she went sort of put her nose in the air and obviously didn't buy that for a second, you know. So I thought, oh, gosh, she's going to get upset if I'm not careful, you know. So I remember I used to I'd be we used to get onto the scene by uh, coming from either side of the stage. So. I always give her an upstage wink so she knew everything was all right before the scene. But it was great crack. You know, there was something about being so vicious to a little, beautiful little girl. And you kind of go, this is great crack. And the audience were horrified. And it was just great crack. <laughs> when, when I'm just thinking of uh, you, pa I mean, what was the best piece of advice you would have received over the years? And then what's the best piece of advice you would pass on to someone uh, who's starting out? I'm thinking of that little girl, probably too young to receive some wisdom. But anything that stuck with you? Oh God, there's so many different things. But God, I don't know. There's a few moments that stand out to me. I remember um, Kevin McHugh, who was a terrific teacher in the Oscar, um, doing a, an improv with us one time, and the, we had to sit there. And the, there's a knock at the door, and 
I instantly reacted with great horror that there was a knock at the door. And he said, no, I didn't say a knock at the door in Belfast. I said a knock at the door. You know, like sometimes you can just try and be dramatic just for the sake of it, you know. But um, like, oh, gosh, I've had so much good advice over the years. But one of the best things I think is to listen to what the other actor is saying to you. And in a way, you know, I mean, sometimes you're like a rabbit in the headlamps because you're just feeling terrified or something's going on um, or, you know, whatever it might be. You might be under rehearsed or, or whatever. And if you can listen to the other person, you can stay in the moment and, and react in the moment and make a scene, you know. But if you can't listen, I don't know how, you know, you, you're really hiding to nothing, you know. You mentioned earlier, um, I suppose we were talking about I suppose, in essence, we were talking about controlling your career or, you know, playing parts that or not playing parts that you might want to play. Is there is there an element that you would like to take control of your own work and write your own work? I know you did um, Show in a Bag. Yeah, that was great fun. And yourself and Marie wrote that yourselves. Yeah, we nearly killed about each that. other in the process, but we're still friends. We, you know, that was that was that was the main achievement that we stayed friends. But it, it was an amazing experience, and it was it was a total whim. I remember, um, she had said to me, "Would we do something together?" Um, years before, and I suddenly saw this thing um, online. It was the Fishamble had put up with the closing date for showing a bag. And I suddenly thought, God, I wonder would Maria be interested in doing something for the crack you know so I rang her and we hadn't an idea or anything and the closing date was the next day and and we just let's put something in just to have tried it'll probably be next year and we'll think about it properly for next year but we'll just throw this in and the next thing they wanted to interview us and so again we we were winging it um, but we by then we had a bit of an idea uh, as to what we wanted to do and um, it was really exciting it was really hard work but and it was terrifying, absolutely. One of the most, I thought I was going to have a heart attack the first time we did an, uh, you know, we did a sort of 10 minute of it uh, in front of the other show in a bag people. And I genuinely thought, I think I'm going to actually have a heart attack. <laughs> the terror of it. But um, yeah, we did it for a while and, and we played around in some of the venues, the Viking Theatre near me and a few, you know, different places. And I really enjoyed doing it. And we went to Limerick and stuff and we played Bewley's for a run. Um, but uh, was it terrifying because it was your own work? It was your own writing? Yeah, you did not know whether it was, you know, whether it was a waste of time or whether it was going to work. And I mean, the, then it was a very relaxing thing to do once we knew it was OK and it made people laugh and, and they liked it. Um, then it was amazing because, you know, you didn't have to worry about paraphrasing because of some brilliant playwright, you know, because you were the one who put it together. And so it was very liberating in a way then, you know. Um, I really enjoyed the experience, actually, eventually. <laughs> Is it easier to trust an established playwright rather than your own? Is there is there a doubt? Well, there? you know, when you've got an established playwright, when you've got an mm -hmm. actual text that's there and it stood the test of time, you know, um, like now with say with this one, Lennox Robinson's play, like it's something eighty odd years old, and it has stood the test of time. People love those characters, and while Cal has, you know, there's certain things he has changed because it's in the sixties, and he knows there's other things that are funnier, and he's put them in for for an audience nowadays, you know. 
But then there's other lines that are just, you know, they're so beautifully constructed and you just think, yeah, it's fantastic, you know. You seem, by the sounds of it, it seems as if, and you've proven this, that you you really take risks and you mentioned like even going to classes and then, and even risking the show in a bag. You're not afraid to put your reputation, I suppose you do it all the time, but you're not afraid to put your reputation on the line and push yourself further and further. Um, <laughs> I don't know what kind of reputation I have, but um, well, you know, I think if you don't try, if you don't scare yourself a little bit, you're, you're dead. You know, you, you, you have to, you just can't phone it in when it's acting, you know, because if you do, you're not going to do a good job. And you do have to push it to the point that it's a little bit scary or it's a bit different to what you normally do or something. I think that's the joy of it as well. Like, you know, that it's kind of um, it's a bit of a crossword puzzle that way, you know, that you kind of uh, you rely on what you do know, but then you also have to leap into something you don't know. And anytime it's a new project, you've never done it before. Even if you've done the play before, it's a new project because like this drama Danish is totally different to the one I did in 2005. So it's it's a total leap in the dark every time. And that's what's great about it, you know. What production do you think you've learned the most on? Whether that's, uh, you know, yeah. Well, what production do you think you've had the the biggest learning curve? Um, oh my goodness. Uh, there was a, well, there was a big learning curve on Dancing at Lunasa because it was maintaining a play for a year because we toured with it to Australia and round Ireland and played the Abbey, played the Gaiety. Um, <clears throat> so maintaining that character for, you know, a year, the guts of, was, was a, a discipline, a new discipline for me. I mean, because you know, our runs are relatively short compared to what you'd have in the UK or America. I did a one woman piece one time and that was a watershed because I suddenly thought, well, I've been able to cope on stage on my own. I've skipped pages and I've gone back um, and I, learning to cope with that, that I definitely felt that I was more um, centred in myself on stage having done the one woman piece because I just, I suppose, I had more confidence after surviving that. I don't know. How do you cope then? Yeah, on the nights that um, a line doesn't land, or that you, or that you feel that it just didn't go your way with that audience. Do you, do you bring it home with you, or do you just clock out uh, as you leave the theatre? Um, I, I don't tend to mull over a performance too much, but certainly if there's something I think I need to fix. You know, I'll talk about it with the other actor and figure it out, figure a way of doing it. I mean, it has to be like that, really, I suppose. Like, I mean, even last night now, there was something that happened in the show and um, myself and two of the other actors kind of going, we think we might change it a bit and adjust it slightly, you know, and it might be funnier that way. You know, that that kind of thing is always part of it. How do you measure success? Success to me, I feel very lucky to be cast <laughs> in a part, in a play that I want to do. That to me is success because Ireland is awash with talent and I know many actors that are so fine and they, they're not necessarily employed as much as I think they should be. And to be employed is a success and then to be happy in your work and feel like you're doing it right, you know. And I have to say, when you hear um, laughter from the audience 
there's it's gorgeous and that is another feeling that you just think well that's you know that's what it's all about like you know um i mean equally i remember doing a play years ago on tour i was in sligo and uh, there was a moment which had this woman in the audience absolutely sobbing it wasn't necessarily my moment, but I was on stage for it anyway. And uh, I remember going, yes, you know, because <laughs> we'd made their, her cry, you know. And it is that thing of just, it, it's landing it. Um, you know, um, I'm the late Pat Laffin, um, who we lost this year, wonderful actor and director. He, you know, he would talk about, you know, when you're doing a crossword, it's like landing a trout. And I think there's something in that about acting. And it's no coincidence that a lot of actors like crosswords that, you know, the kind of, when you land a line and and it works, that's just that's it. That's what it's all about. It's, it just feels so good. Now you've played Broadway and you've toured the world and you must have played with every theatre company in Ireland and you have carved out an incredible career for yourself and a life out of theatre. So I'd imagine there's joys and sacrifices to it. And would they balance each other out? Uh, there's the question. Um <laughs> A uh, friend of mine, Barney Hughes, who actually was in that first play I did in the Abbey, um, he he contributed to this book that actors, you know, what were their quotes about acting and life? And he, his line was, um, you know, acting and your private life, the trick is to make them come out even, you know. And acting, it can be a huge, it's a magnificent obsession. There's no two ways about it. And in a way to survive this business, it needs to be. You, you can't be half hearted about it. I mean, you know, I, I've seen actors say, I'm moving to London now. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And you kind of go, well, is the work there for you in London? You know, you can't arbitrarily decide I'm going to make my life here and then expect the acting work to just come. You kind of have to go with roll with the punches, whatever way acting comes for you. You know, the work might only come to you in Ireland or it might come to you abroad, whatever. But you have to just be able to. It's a bit of a magnificent obsession, as I say again. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I remember in the past, like there, you know, there were relationships that went by the board because I was off on tour for six months or whatever. And, you know, things like that. I think you do have to, in in a way, work as hard at your personal life to make sure you you've got fulfilment in other areas, and that you know not all your friends are in the business. That you've got some semblance of of life outside the business as well, because um, otherwise it could you can drown in it. I think, yeah, you know. A theme of drama, I can't. It's my cold. A theme <laughs> of drama at Inish is the power that a play can have on someone. Is there a play that impacted you and made you see life or theatre in a different way? Um, well, I always tell um, Leslie Lawler, the actress, um, that it was she who, who convinced me to be an actor because I went to see her in a play in The Gate when I was in school and she swept on the stage in this cloak and I thought, oh, I want to be like her. Um, because I can remember that moment very vividly. And uh, the laugh is, of course, I don't get to sweep on in cloaks. That's not the kind of part I play. But... Um, you know, there's different plays at different times in my life, I would say, that, you know, really educate you or, or bring you on in some way. I remember seeing the late, great Ray McAnally on stage in Death of a Salesman. And I can still feel how I felt watching him in the, the dying embers of the play. He was extraordinary. Um, 
I remember doing a voice class with him, which I still remember. He was he was had an impact. Um, yeah, different things, and of course working with the late great Donald McCann, you know, in wonderful Tennessee, that was an extraordinary experience, and and. You know, I feel very grateful that I got to work with him and got to know him as well and different people and different authors like Brian Freel. I mean, I was saying this the other day, like it's kind of amazing to have done a few of Brian Freel's plays, for instance, and him to have been at them, you know. Um, and I suppose at the time you kind of take that for granted, you know, that he saw us doing Lunasa and Tennessee and I did... Um, uh, what do you call it Philadelphia here I come I played Aunt Lizzie twice actually but he saw it the first time when I played it in the Gaiety and I remember kind of going you know that's such a, a privilege you know to have met him and known him and I mean we have living playwrights I feel like that about as well Frank McGuinness and Maureen McCarr and people like that you know and just think so lucky you know to, to work with such great people Of all the characters that you have played which one of them would you think is cl- closest to you or that or that you gave most of yourself to um I suppose I'd have to say payback the play I wrote with Maria the show in a bag play because <laughs> I mean there was some eccentric little moments that we put into it that were totally indulging me <laughs> there was one little riff about fried eggs that you know was apropos of nothing that got past the censor and, <laughs> you know, silly little things like that. But there were also serious moments in it. I'm, you know, um, I had lost my father um, not too many years before that. And, you know, I have, I had a lot of uh, political, um, what will I say? I, I was, I would say, yeah, woken up politically a bit by that experience because of the way... Uh, the government and subsequent governments have treated the health service in this country and, and, you know, how you had to pay for parking in the hospitals and all sorts of injustices that I saw. So a lot of that went into payback. Um, and I would say that was me getting riled up and passionate about those things, you know. What do you get out of acting? Um... It's a weird thing to say. This sounds really stupid, but I feel more like myself when I'm acting, even though I'm not being myself. I know that's weird, but um, I just feel I was meant to do it. I just feel that's what I was meant to do, put on this earth to do kind of thing, you know. So I don't know. Are you more comfortable playing a part? We've done so many question times over the years with Matt yeah. Jobs, or <laughs> years and years of them. And I always felt that you were more comfortable doing the work on stage than marrying out front. Yeah, I think, um, like, I mean, I'm older and wiser now and I'm a bit more able for these kind of chats, but I don't really like talking about acting up for doing it. And I mean... I remember somebody saying one time, actors act, it's an action. And I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, even in rehearsals, you know, I've worked with some people who just want to talk about it all the time. That does my head in. I just want to do it. And if it's wrong, fine. But I'd rather do it and find out it's wrong than talk rings around myself, you know. Do you think when you mentioned at the start about how you were a shy kid, do you think you ever shake that shy kid thing? Um, I think, yeah, that, that shy kid's always there. 
like you know obviously but um i'm a bit of a loud mouth shy kid now <laughs> you Good know for you. people who know me go what shy i don't think so <laughs> too many opinions <laughs> do you think you've had an epiphany um and and as you say you you woke up politically that is that's a recent thing for you yeah the, my dad died in 2007 and he died in st luke's cancer hospital which is a public hospital and all the hospitals I'd brought him to before that, um, well, you know, we all know the hell that, that people have been through. When we went to St. Luke's, it was an oasis. And I thought, oh, God, if, God forbid I ever get cancer. But if I did, I, I feel I could get better here. It was a wonderful place. Um, and yeah, I mean, just extraordinary staff, everything about it. And I couldn't believe it was a public hospital. It, it felt more like a private hospital and there's beautiful grounds. And of course, a lot of the patients and their families have contributed a lot to the gardens there and, and it, they've worked very hard on it and, and raised funds and all of that. But the government of the day, um, led by Mary Harney, who was the health minister at the time, were seeing fit to close St. Luke's. And I mean, two weeks after Dad died, I was on a protest march to save St. Luke's. And then, I mean, I think actually, the, I mean, I don't know for a fact, but I think the recession helped the cause that um, whatever plans there were in place for it uh, to redevelop it or whatever um, didn't come to pass because of the, the crash. Um, but it was that was my awakening moment to realise, I mean, I sound so naive like that at whatever age I was at the time. I don't know what age was I, 46. I just um, thought the government were there for the good of the people. And I naively believed that that's what they I really thought, well, I'll just let them know St. Luke's is very special and needs to be kept for for cancer patients throughout Ireland. But they knew it was a great place. They knew it was cutting edge and um, they were still going to sell it down the river and I couldn't get my head around that. I still don't get my head around that. I still don't know how they sleep at night with the amount of homeless we have. Um, I don't understand. I mean, as somebody said recently, you know, when you have, what have we got? Nearly 15,000 homeless now uh, in 2019. Um, you know, we've had rising figures of homelessness since that that crash. And, you know, it's it has continued to get worse and you kind of think well if that's continued to get worse and it's not being ameliorated properly then it's it's a policy it's not a crisis it's a policy whatever they're doing I don't understand it and I, maybe that's naive of me but I can't understand it Coming up to Christmas you start thinking you know uh, of being charitable and it seems to be well for most of us, let's say, I'll be hard myself. It's it's a one time a year thing, and you you know you try. We we, we work at Abbey Street. We see it every day. Yeah. But it's interesting. Last year, when I was putting out, we have this tradition in our family, of putting out a red candle in the window. Uh, I was putting it out last year. I don't know. I just took a moment, and I I thought to myself, what would I do if someone knocked on the door, do you know, and said, I need a place for the night, do you know? And it, yeah. you just think, like I'm I'm part of that as well. I it just I guess that was my moment that I just thought I have to some way figure this out for myself as well. The other thing I somebody said recently to me, you know, we we can't individually we can't help everybody. We can't save fifteen thousand homeless people from homelessness. But 
you know, if you can focus on one person, you can really help one person. And that's kind of an approach I've started to take that, that you, you know, there is an overwhelming feeling that you can't fix it, but you can maybe help one individual, make them feel they matter. That's the approach that I'm trying to take now.